This trajectory interview with Palantir CTO Sham Sankar and head of global commercial Ted Mabry was published on Thursday, June 15th, 2023. Good morning. This trajectory interview is with the executives of a public company, but truthfully, I approached it as another installment of the trajectory founder series. As a reminder, one of the challenges in covering startups is the lack of available data. My solution is to go in the opposite direction and interview founders directly, letting them give their subjective overview of their companies while pressing them on their business model, background, and long-term potential. In this case, there is certainly SEC-mandated data available about Pelantir, but this has always felt like a company that was mostly mysterious. To that end, I wanted to take the opportunity to interview Chief Technology Officer Shyam Sankar and Head of Global Commercial Ted Mabry about how exactly Pelantir came to be, what it is today, and the opportunities it has going forward. I'm going to be honest. I'm incredibly intrigued by what Palantir is building, and will probably write more about the company soon. What I hope you enjoy about this interview, which is very dense, is the extent to which I felt like I was expanding my understanding of the company in real time. On to the interview. Sham Sankar and Ted Mabry, welcome to Shashakari. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So... Palantir is not a company that I've covered to date. I, I did write about your S1, which is the one we'll actually get to that in a little bit. So I just want to sort of put up front that, well, Palantir is a public company. I'm going to treat this interview a little bit more like one of the founder series. I'm sort of in personally in like somewhat sort of exploration mode and wanting to better understand your business. So you're going to get off a little easy. Uh, I think I'm not trying to like nail you to the wall and anything, but I actually am quite intrigued. Um, Sham, you, you reached out to me a little bit ago to sort of talk about the, the, the business. And I've been hearing a lot of good things. I did go back and watch a few of your investor videos where I was invoked. So I, that was like obviously a, a good way to sort of get me on board. But I want to go back to even before then, sort of back to the beginning. Sham, you said you were employee 13. Is, is that right? That's right. Yeah. And Ted, when did you join the company? 2010. 2010. Okay. And so Palantir was officially started in 2003, I believe, although it's reported 2004. What was it like back then? Was the vision of Palantir presented to you? Like, was that the vision that sort of persists to today? Or was there a shift? Like, like I mean, this is like pre-product, pre-anything. What got Sham Sankar sort of on board back in the day? Well, the thing that's been hugely consistent over time is, is the ambition of what we're trying to accomplish. So, you know, when a group of folks got together in a post-9-11 world and said, why are we arguing about what's more important, privacy or security? They're both obviously important. How do we build technologies that allow you to have more of both? You know, it, it's, not, it's not a simple web app. It's, it's not a trivial technical vision. Uh, and that's what got me deeply wedded to this. And in that journey, like the, the technology we had to build, the ambition that we continually upscaled and upscoped. So while it started actually very focused on government, this sort of idea that technology can have a profound effect on how the institutions we need in the world to function function and why that would extend beyond uh, government to commercial institutions. I think that's very clear in a post-financial crisis world. That's been remarkably consistent. So you mentioned sort of the upscale in sort of ambition, and you put it in the context of starting with government and obviously the huge sort of growth story, I think, around Palantir is largely around your, your enterprise offering, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. 
But something you've talked about is the extent to which Palantir is like the fattest of fat startups in many respects, where you feel like you have to build the entire system from top to bottom to sort of deliver on your promise. Was that part of that or is that something that sort of expanded over time that you're talking about as you sort of figured out what needed to be done? Well, as Ted sometimes says, it's like, what are you accountable to? You know, are are you accountable to um, some sort of narrow definition of the software that you're building? Because the way we think about it is our success is our customer success. And we just kept expanding what we thought our software needed to do based on what we thought was empirically true on the ground. Like that thing that you think is working is not working. So if, if, I, if that is below me in the stack, like I, I got to own that because I need that to work. If you're trying to help soldiers come back from war zones, nobody says like, well, I use the software that's at the top of the Gartner Quadrant. You know, the standard is much more absolute. Uh, and, and so how do you go after that's it just got thicker and thicker from the perspective of what are you learning is kind of a Potumkin village of software. Like what, and not because I think the software literally doesn't compile, obviously, it's just that it just doesn't do what the enterprise needs it to do. And when you're at the coal face, you can find all these secrets, all these truths that somehow get lost in the bureaucracy of the organization of what works and doesn't work and why. So was was there a particular moment like where there was a real shift to, OK, we're in the post 9-11 sort of area. People say you have to choose between security and privacy. We think we can deliver both. We're going to do a startup that can sort of build this. And as you're building it, you're like, OK, well, we actually need to build this. We need to build this. We need to integrate into into sort of that. Was there an aha moment where you have this concept, use this phrase now at the beginning of all your financial reports, which is which is that you're sort of the operating system for enterprises. Now, obviously, this is still sort of the government era, but it's interesting. The S1 uses that line, but it's kind of further down. It's not sort of the lead thing. Was that something that sort of emerged later or was this bit that like, no, we have to be the interface for everything, was that critical to sort of Gotham, your sort of government, the government sort of intelligent intelligent software that you built? I, I think the critical part of it was really realizing, like we had built the original product kind of presupposing that our customers had data integrated, that we could focus on the analytics that came subsequent to having your data integrated. Got it. And I feel like the, the like founding trauma was realizing that actually everyone claims that their data is integrated and it is a complete mess. And that actually the much more interesting and valuable part of our business was developing technologies that allowed us to productize data integration instead of having it be like a five-year never-ending consulting project so that we could do the thing we actually started our business to do. Right. So the the analytics was the goal, but it, it turned out to actually like you had to build your own picks and shovels, your own pick and shovel factory to even start to do the analytics. And that ended up being more valuable in the long run. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense as sort of the transition goes. So lay out to me, what is Gotham? And we're going to get to Foundry sort of in a moment. But I think just to sort of be super clear, what is this product? Who buys it? What is it used for? So so Gotham is an operating system for defense intelligence organizations. It allows them to integrate multimodal data. So this could be satellite imagery, uh, video, structured and unstructured text data, sensor, sensor data, fuse that together to create a common operating picture. Like, how can I see what's actually happening in the world right now? And use that as a, you know, you can think about that as a single pane of data that allows you to have a single pane of glass and then plan forward. So based on what's happening now, what could we be doing to create the effects in the world that we want? So you keep using the, or both of us keep using the term operating system, but I got it from you. So what are, 
is this something where you had to go in and work with other defense contractors to build something that sort of sat on top of them? Or you just had to sort of figure that out on your own? Like, how did you get to this idea of, again, from being just an analytic sort of piece of software to this operating system idea? It's really one of the core things that Ted developed for this business, which is an obsession with decisions. You know, instead of going data forward, like what data do I have? How do I bring it together? How do we actually kind of squint at an institution or an operation and think about it as a series of interconnected decisions? How do I bring better intelligence, coordination, and compounding to those decisions and chain them together? And what would I need to be able to do that? So that's where the single pane of glass becomes really important. This is the, this is the place where I'm going to make the decision. Okay, well, how do I optimize what's coming into that decision? And then how do I help you understand the consequences upstream and downstream of these decisions? And then that's single player mode, but that's not interesting. Really, it's, it, you're talking about massive, concurrent, multiplayer decisions that are happening. And you want to enable the technology to drive that coordination. It's not because Sham and Ben and Ted happen to all know each other or that we've come up with some sort of SOP. It's that the data that is a consequence of my decision is changing how I'm doing things. So we often frame this in terms of like most of these analytic systems think of data as exhaust. You know, it's like the exhaust of the transactional system and maybe you're going to go analyze it. But actually data is fuel. If you, if you, if you flip this around and say like, this is going to fuel my operations, what do you change in terms of how you think of your stack and how you think of the roles of the humans who are operating and using your software? This is where I think that the metaphor of the operating system is, is quite important here. It, this is not a terminal dashboard. This is not analytics. It actually is about the decision-making. And then you're going to get many chances at making this decision. You want, you want tomorrow's decision against the same problem to be better than the one before. And so if you're, if you're thinking, look, I'm in a learning loop. How do I wield everything at my disposal to get better at this every day? So you've the sort of founding trauma, if you will, to, to quote Sham on the, the data was disintegrated. I think then the second sort of trauma was the sort of utility or lack thereof of insights. Uh, so starting with like, okay, I have to get this data integrated. I need to get to a single source of truth. Uh, the sort of standard get data, organize data, analyze data, act on data. That that gap that looks like the last step of once I know something I can do about it. But then you think about how is that insight deployed into a multiplayer mode complex value chain? And what we found time and time again is that the hypothetical value of an insight when tried to deploy operationally to the front lines of people actually making decisions, there's an ocean of a gap. And so we really need to be able to be accountable to what is the information intelligence that is needed at the point of decision? What is the frame on that information that we need? Why is the existing underlying data not provide that frame? And then when you can have that frame and make that decision, how do you do that more intelligently, more automated, more collaboratively, more compounding over time? So how do you do that? I mean, like that seems like a pretty – I mean, theoretically, I can get the bit where, okay, you make a decision. Now it's sort of – you've entered the fact you made the decision. You can track the outcome of that and see sort of what happened or didn't. Is that – is it just about sort of closing the loop in that regard or is there sort of a communications aspect to this? I mean, this – this sounds all great, but like, how does it actually manifest itself in like a military or, yeah. or a national security agency? Well, fortunately for us, uh, I think there are a ton of commonalities, whether you are an operator in the defense context or you're trying to figure out how to drill an underground mine or figure out how to build an airplane, uh, more effectively discover new drugs deliver vaccines, whatever it might be. There's actually a lot of commonalities in sort of where the existing software stack breaks down in 
enabling operators to make those decisions. And so we sort of think of that as a development of levels of sophistication of the workflow. The first part of that workflow is, do I have 360 degree awareness of everything that I need to know to make my local decision at my fingertips with timely data presented to me in a way that I can understand that? And if I'm a blue collar worker on the factory floor at Fiat Chrysler or at Airbus, that view is going to be very different than if I'm a CEO making long-term strategic decisions. But there's a lot of data coming from CRM, sensor data, ERPs, whatever it might be. Can I get that you know, in, in the AI sense, that context window that is exactly the context that I need in order to make that decision? Now, that's all well and good because it allows me to, instead of fight a lot of different systems, swivel chair into different screens, have Excel macros that create my own local source of truth, different views in the data warehouse, whatever it might be, giving me at the transaction level, this is the thing that I need with all the context that is there. I now want to start to become more intelligent as I do it. So I want to automate things, simple things as how do I prioritize which thing I need to do first? Well, in order to do that prioritization, I need that integrated context window. And then I need to be able to deploy models and intelligence and rules from simple algebra up to and including artificial intelligence models to help me drive the prioritization of how I'm making that decision. So if I have an integrated view about my customer service workflow, what is the most pressing customer now when I have the entirety of product usage and everything I know about the value of that customer at that point of decision making? So as we sort of think 360 degree awareness, now start to layer in intelligence with it, Um, maybe best described in a concrete example of If I'm running an offshore oil platform, I need a well 360, but then I also need alerting on when when is the fiber optic data that is streaming data off the downhole uh, uh, signaling that I have sanding risk. Uh, But that's one thing. Is is this sort of like what you're driving at, it seems to me, is making lots of this data that may have existed in all these different systems, basically making it much more real-time accessible sort of in the moment. And that is that sort of the gulf that you sort of had to bridge? That was the first order gulf was real-time data across all the different systems presented in a context that is usable for an operator. But then I also need two things. I need to be able to integrate models into that view. So it's not just a representation of the data. I now need all of the intelligence that can be asserted by models into right. that. So that has to be co-equal. And then critically also the ability to act on the things that I have. So how can I literally create physical change in the world from that same application? I'm not looking at something and then going, figuring out how to implement it in SAP. I am executing and write, writing BAP and calling the BAPI function in order to create the purchase orders across my SAP. Got it. That was that I huge goal that you were talking about before that was that was missing. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I think that's a, that's a natural transition to Foundry. What was... Um, what was the history of Foundry? So you have those are your two main products. You have Gotham that is for government and Foundry that is for sort of the enterprise. And help me understand: is it that are they totally different software stacks? Is there a lot of commonalities? Is it Apollo? You sort of your your deployment system that is the commonality there. And was Foundry in the vision sort of from the beginning, or was this a look our founding sort of idea was to solve this government national security problem. Turns out we have this capability that's sort of a, 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 a useful elsewhere. That, that was a whole bunch of stuff. But basically, tell me the, the Foundry story. So, so Foundry, while it started in commercial, has, has now grown. It, you, know, it, you can kind of think about it as like Foundry. Apollo is at the very bottom of the stack. It's the production infrastructure. Foundry is next. 
um, which we can, and it's, it's kind of full stack, but go with me. Gotham will sit on top of it. Got it. So Gotham, Gotham so is like a government it. specific manifestation of the foundry sort of foundries, like the operating system in some respects. And, and Apollo is like the infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, we started Foundry in commercial, I'd say almost doubling down on this realization that data integration doesn't work. And the amount of tooling, like you can get it to work on like day zero, it kind of works on day one, but like how do you deal with the entropy of the universe in data over years and what accumulates there and what sort of tooling would you need? And so all of this kind of like, how do we treat data integration like code? How do we think, how do we treat more and more of the enterprise like code? How do we productize that component that Ted was just talking about that allows you to abstract and integrate not only your data into a semantic layer, but bring your models, bind your models to that data, and then build that decision, that integrated decision-making tooling on top of that. So customers could build what they needed for the factory worker at a, at a Detroit a car factory, but also an offshore oil worker or an, you know a hospital operations person. So that is the origin of it, but it started, I'd say at the bottom of the stack and we just kept building as we realized like, okay, I can deal with really complicated real-time data integration that gives you this level one 360 awareness. Now, how do I give you more tooling to bring the real-time intelligence insight into it? Now, how do I give you a digital twin that allows you to do dynamic simulation and counterfactuals of like, oh, if I made this decision, how do I cascade it through to understand the consequences of it? And then turn that around so that you can automatically, programmatically generate scenarios. Like here are 10 decisions I could make. Let me play through the consequences of them and now enable the human operator to select amongst them. Right. And then to sort of Ted's point, actually make the decision and have it sort of filter back down into the sort of the underlying layers. And critically, when you make that decision with the integrated view, you're also creating a data asset that allows you to learn on top of it. Right. right? Because I have like this action was taken. What this happened? is the contextual information of everything else that was happening in the world at that moment. I now have the training data asset for me to be able to actually train things given the context of the decision I actually made, not some aggregated analytic view that I construct later. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So you mentioned, uh, Sham, that in 2017 was sort of the most the, the critical year for Palantir. And you said that was despite the fact that from a financial perspective, that was arguably the worst year in the in the company's history. And why was that? Tell me about like the 2017 sort of pivot point as far as Palantir is concerned. That was the point where Foundry had had really come to market and we were able to transition our customers in the commercial world, transition that revenue to run on top of Foundry. So before it was just a bunch of like custom integrations, custom deployments and all these different customers. Yeah, there, there was a period of like experimenting with what the product was and where it sat in the stack. And I'd say the things that we'd built would subsequently become like apps within Foundry, right? So like Foundry gave us the infrastructure to really scale what we were doing, not only across the commercial world, but across all of our government customers. And it gave us the ability to go fast. And I think also critically, just the ability to go fast, but also still be accountable to the same outcomes. So 2017, we were able to consolidate on Foundry, but also deliver 33% ramp up in the acceleration of the A350 production. Like, so how do you sort of push out the efficient frontier of building exactly what people need to solve their exact critical problem, but on the same common foundation where there's commonalities where you can use it for Airbus or PB or Swiss Re or whoever it might be? Right. So basically, this was really where Foundry became an operating system to sort of your point where you talk about this idea of companies, you know, where they generate alpha, where they generate beta sort of idea. And this bit that everyone wants to build their own custom 
software because that will give them advantage. No one else sort of has that software. But there is an extent to which there's a lot of stuff that everyone has to do the same thing sort of over and over again. If you think about an operating system in the context of a computer, that is sort of covers the totality of the computer. But there's lots of computers. And so what sort of sits across all those computers and that at a very simplified level, it just seems to be a sort of a rethinking of what an operating system is. I actually think there is an interesting analogy to Microsoft where Microsoft sort of in the productivity area of space, you know, one of the issues, there's a SAS explosion, right? There's all these different sort of single solutions, but how do you actually tie them all together into some sort of commonality and I think Microsoft has done very well sort of focusing on that. I think that's underappreciated that integration mediocre, mediocrely done is better than no integration at all. And I think that's sort of underrated. And what I'm hearing, the analogy I have in my head, and correct me if, it's, if I'm wrong, is Palantir is doing a similar thing, but basically at for industries as sort of at scale. You've talked a lot about oil companies building aircraft carriers. This is a little bit different than stitching together sort of a chat client and uh, and sort of Word documents. It's really at the level of SAP and 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 you know ERP systems and all that sort of thing. Sorry, I'm rambling a little bit. I just want to make sure I'm painting the right picture of what Palantir is. Is that sort of a good way to think about it? Our ambition is to have the operating system that enables every institution in the world to make every decision that they make. And when you think about that, okay, well, you can blow that out in two dimensions. Like one is they exist in a value chain, you know. So from the hand of their suppliers to the hand of their customers, there are a lot of decisions that happen. It's it's more it's not really linear. It's like a web of decisions. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is between strategy and operation. So what what is, what is the top of the house trying to do, and what is the process by which that gets translated into actions? Often that's that's pretty disconnected. Uh, and, and I think this is the ultimate manifestation of why we're so focused on alpha. Like, how do you deliver alpha and not just beta? Well, it's by connecting strategy and operations. So there's actually a steering wheel when the C-suite is trying to accomplish something that links that up and informs the decisions that start to get made in a way that provides a feedback loop. So to, um, to really sort of make sure this is clear, though, where does a company like, say, SAP fit relative to a Palantir? Are you looking to replace them or is this sort of more of a layering on sort of on top? Uh, and I'm using them as a stand-in for all these sort of industrial-grade sort of uh, software companies that have been around for a very long time, are very deeply integrated into these companies. Where is Palantir relative to that? Is this a rip-out and replace, or or how, how does that work? So I, I think there's two ways that you can think about it. One is uh, you have all of these sort of industrial-grade industrial grade core sort of transactional systems. And then a question that we ask, and this is a question we ask when we start our customers, is you know, how many of your decisions are made through those systems? How many of your resources are allocated every day through those systems? And how many of them are allocated around those systems? Uh, so where do they fall down? Uh, and and there, so there's sort of the first thing, which is the low-hanging fruit of, well, in theory, this is what my ERP does. In practice, this is what I do through Excel emails, phone calls, right. uh, like the, 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 the number of customizations that I have to do. And then the customizations that are impossible to unwind. If I, if I, you know, so how do I deal with the fact that kind of this, this beta, the, uh, conform to my system, uh, isn't how every single business operates. And so how do you provide flexibility to use the things that are hardened, excellent, provide significant automation, but then fall over when they have to meet your customer where you need or where you need intelligence in order to do it. So, so I think that's the low-hanging fruit. The higher-order bit is then, well, why do I reflect the way that I run my business 
which, you know, at its business in its natural state, trying to figure out how to allocate scarce resources, why do I have to battle it through the existing software architecture of thinking about what's in my CRM, what's in my Pi Historian, what's in my ERP, what's in my MES? Like I build airplanes, I build cars. I want to be able to think of these things and make decisions that takes into context everything across that value chain. So when I'm making a change to my production schedule, I'm taking into account what's happening in the market at that given point in time uh, and sort of view my business in its natural state where I can start to interact with it as an executive in the way that I think about my business, not sort of fighting uh, three weeks to get a report to tell me what's going on in the frame of how I actually want to run the thing. I'm feeling very good about my sort of team's analogy here, because the point I've always made there is where Microsoft really kicks the rear end of a lot of these SaaS companies in the market is a lot of these companies forget they're not built like people aren't out there to buy, you know, to use a Slack example, chat software. They're out there to actually run their business and they're just looking for something to sort of help them get done. So when you say something like, look, I'm trying to build airplanes, I think that sort of really resonates. And so let's talk about this. One of the things that's really interesting about Palantir that I found very striking is this bit about how, you know, traditional software, you you don't just buy the software, but then you have to like have a systems integrator or you're maybe you contract with a company directly. They have a services division to actually sort of implement and install the software. And that's a separate contract sort of above and beyond sort of the, the, the contract. Is it still the case that Palantir, there is no installation sort of contract that's just part of the service. If you sign up for Palantir, Palantir is going to come in and sort of put the software in. Is that the case still? And if that's the case, like what's the payoff for you from doing it that way? Yes and no. So, so I think there are two interesting dimensions to it. So one is that our sort of our FDEs, you know, the, the FDE model, uh, we think of as one of our greatest secrets, one of the greatest features of the company. And the primary reason we think of that is that it provides accountability to us uh, that aligns us with our customers to say, is the software doing what the customer actually needs? Not just is someone using it, like have we delivered the feature in a way that uh, sort of matches what the software industrial complex would want out of this feature and the current understanding of the stack, but like, is it actually working? And how do we walk a mile in our customer's shoes? Uh, and when you think about, and the, the way we think about our software is, you know, we're very proud of what it's done so far. Uh, we think the outcomes that it's delivered are really real but we think we've only built 1% of the software that we need to build. Uh, and so how do we continue to create a accountability function, mentioning what, what Sham had, that is the accountability to the end outcome of our customers. And that is primarily the service that, that the FDE provides to Palantir as the institution is living at the coal face, sitting there saying like, did it actually work? Did it actually matter? Uh, now also we want to do that in a way that provides maximum scalability over time. And so what we've been doing is investing in the, I think that sort of innovation feedback will always be a part of Palantir, but there are other customers that also start to deliver things that provide that same level of accountability, not just install the software, but something that really works. And so we can start to see other third parties are implementing the software independently. And where that's really working for us is where those customers are very aligned with their end customer. Uh, and so we're seeing that, for instance, scaling in the EPC sort of engineering space with someone like a Jacobs engineering, like they're doing physical things, right? Like they're signing up for the vegetation management so the wildfire doesn't ignite. That's a really good scaling partner for us of implementing the software because they provide that same accountability function that our FDEs do when we're doing the implementation. And a big part of this also plays into the product feedback loop. So like that's customer facing on the product side. 
you know, how do I, I want the time to implement the software to be as short as possible and the value you get subsequent to, to be compounding. Uh, and so by taking ownership of that, I'm not getting disintermediated from the signal. What could I be building to make this go twice as fast or to enable you to do twice as much? And by internalizing that cost, we have a radical incentive to invest in that, where I think there's kind of an agency problem for lots of other companies where it's like, how am I, am I actually depriving something from my partners here? To what extent is there a product feedback loop in that you have to build particular integrations for a customer as you're doing this, and then you will reuse that for other customers? That's certainly part of it. I mean, I think you could say, look, you can generically integrate any sort of data. But then as we started getting closer to very complicated industrial systems, um, then it's like, okay, these are pretty particular and how you want to model it. I'd say almost in part, what's more interesting is like, what is the semantic model that you want that helps you define the zero to value? Like, how do I get to the use case that people are trying to do with this? So I'm not just shipping a data connector, but actually more of like an integrated chain of like, this is the golden path that gets you to your first dollar of return inside of a couple of days. So what's sort of the life cycle then of a company using Palantir? So because it sounds like there's sort of, you know, this ties into the operating system metaphor where at the beginning, you're almost like building the computer. So, it, but you're not going to buy, you're not going to get a new ERP system is what I'm hearing from you. You're not getting a new CRM system. You have lots of sort of pieces that are already there. And so the initial goal is for Palantir to sort of tie those pieces together into your phrase, sort of a, a single pane of glass. But after someone has Palantir, is the expectation that everything from going forward is just going to be on Palantir directly? And that's sort of like, that's the end of like, sure, they may maintain their SAP contract, but they're not going to be buying any other sort of enterprise software in the future. Is that is that sort of the viewpoint that you have? No, I mean, people are going to, we live in a context of a brownfield reality, right? Like, so not only is there a lot of stuff that's there over time, but they're going to want the optionality to go wherever they need to go in the future. So then what, what concretely happens, like, you know, let's just say you've used this for a little bit, you're a more mature customer, maybe you have tens of thousands of users on this, this becomes the logical place to solve the next use case or problem that arises in the business, because you have all of your data there modeled in your digital twin, you have access to all of the AI models in the enterprise, and it's wired up into your transactional system so that when you make a decision, you can actually activate it. Uh, and then you start to accumulate applications that are interconnected. Like I have a procurement app and a production app. And when I get a discount raw material, I can understand how is this going to affect my production plan pretty seamlessly. Now, the, the last mile of this, though, is like, of course, you don't want this inside of the walled garden, is that the, the ontology SDK allows you to go bring all of this data, all of the digital twin simulation dynamics to the applications you have in the enterprise, whether those are custom-built apps or third-party apps where you just simply want the data to flow to. So that it gives you kind of like an enterprise buff, which is a little bit closer to the operating system metaphor where it's like, look, I can build my own application. I can pull data in and out of this. You know, Foundry will handle. Our, our applications will handle a lot of the low-level details of which transactional systems is coming from. How do you actually write back to these systems? How do I coordinate and integrate these things? Um, and that liberates the application developers to know their business, which they already do, and then build applications that change their business rather than fighting with whatever technical decisions have been made in the past. Right. Well, I mean, because you're being like a middleware layer almost, right? Because they're writing to Palantir. So the question is, do you see a development of not just sort of internal line of business apps where going forward, once Palantir is in place, they write to Palantir, but is there a market of third-party sort of enterprise applications 
that you foresee in the future sort of working with Palantir out of the box and assuming that Palantir is sort of in place? Yeah, I'd say we're there already. I mean, maybe, Ted, you'd like to talk about some of the ecosystem enterprises we built. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you take Skywise as an example, which is the Airbus digital program that uses Foundry underneath it as its operating system, it's deployed across 150 different airlines uh, where they provide different applications. One, to be able to facilitate secure exchange of information so that the people who fly the aircraft can get it back to the people who design and fix the aircraft, but also so that the people who design and fix the aircraft can deploy predictive maintenance applications to 150 airlines, but be able to do that at scale on top of that same common ontology that abstracts away the differences in all the underlying systems that are different across each one of those different systems. Got it. So do you, do you, do all those individual airlines, do they have a contract with Palantir then to go in or this is all sort of via, via Airbus? This is all via, via, via Skywise. Yeah. So Skywise is like, you can think about it as the suite of applications that Airbus built on top of Foundry and they sell that to their airline customers. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm sort of curious, what does the go-to-market for this look like? This gets back to the the fat, very, very fat sort of startup sort of concept, which Palantir is in spades. You start out and you have this, look, there's this very clear national security issue around, around terrorism that you are out to address. And the U.S. was in the mood to sort of open up the pocketbooks. And so that was a great place to sort of get started. But now you're talking about these these large entities, whether it be an Airbus or an oil company or 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 manufacturer or other sort of manufacturer, and it sounds like this is a pretty big ask. You're asking them to basically transform the entire plane of their company. To your point, because you're not going to get the benefit of Palantir by just like this isn't a one team in the company saying, "Oh, this is very useful and makes us more productive." This is talking about sort of like you're not going to get the benefits unless everything is on there. So. What's the pitch? How do you go in? How do you get companies to sort of commit to this? Yeah, so, so not exactly true, um, but the I would say the, the way I would describe it at a high level is the implementation essentially indexes the ambition of the customer. And as Sham had mentioned, sort of by internalizing the, a lot of the cost and accelerating the sort of speed to value and productizing that data integration layer, that means that we've been able to dramatically lower the floor while also extending the ceiling of what we want to do. Um, and so what we've done over the last two years, Interesting, because you've just accumulated so much experience of installing these, you feel you can walk yeah, in any so, company and get it done pretty Median time quickly. to production, right? Median time of our uh, our POCs, uh, sort of, and POCs at the end of, you don't have a POC, you have a production proof, application that's used concept, by users yeah. in anger is, is six to eight weeks. Uh, and so that allows us to start with an individual problem. It does oftentimes require that our customer says, like, I recognize that I have a problem that my existing software stack does not solve. Without that, we're challenged. Uh, but that problem can be very specific and something that we can solve on the order of weeks. But if your problems in, in, involve your problem solving involves sort of integrating lots of different software, are you effectively installing an operating system just to solve one problem? Maybe it's only manu- sort of manifesting in one way, or can you sort of go in and say, "Look, we just have a CRM problem. We just have a whatever problem m- might be like. What is this? What does this proof of concept bit look like?" Because how do you how do you do what yeah. you do without building putting in the whole thing? Oftentimes, what these things are is they start with like, okay, what version of the problem that Palantir can solve do I realize that I have, and that often manifests itself in a very specific way. Like I have um, a huge amount of prob- of challenge with volatility in my supply chain, so I'm either like blowing OTIF or I have exploding inventory, and with high interest rates, like I can't manage that. Like that's the thing I know. That's the problem I know I have. Now, in order to solve that. 
uh, I have to integrate probably several different systems underneath that. But I can bring that and approach that in a software-defined way where I can say, like, I can uh, start to address your excess inventory problem with an application that is in production on the order of weeks. Then oftentimes what they do is they'll see that and say, okay, well, now that I have that, I'd also like to integrate what my pricing strategy is, how I'm doing my contract management as a function of creating these problems for myself, how I do my production planning, how I deal with managing supplier shortages, but that sort of classic land and expand strategy of horizontal data integration, very focused, very accountable. What is the ROI on the end user production application? That's how most of these things start. Got it. So if you can if you can solve that first problem in the order of weeks, is it fair to say you can often solve a second or third problem almost in the order of days because you've already got all this sort of yes. the, the, the data there? Exactly. And, and this is where it gets fun. Uh, and where it really, you know, we end up being bound by the ambition of our customers of, of seeing that and saying, okay, once I have this, what's the next thing that I can do? What's the next thing that I can do? What's the next thing that I can do? I mean, it's almost like an analogy of Palantir, the company, where where because you start out with the sort of grand ambition, and once you realize you're solving all the problems, that like. It, it, now you can go into customers. You can basically install your grand ambition by default because that's the way you solve a singular problem. And then as they just sort of appreciate sort of the opportunity sort of goes from there. I mean, I'm sounding like a bit of a fanboy, but obviously, I mean, Shabby sort of said this in the, uh, you know, in that, you know, some of your investor talks about this idea of you're, you're aggregating problem solving in a certain respect because you've already sort of collected all the data. It's already all in one place. And so the marginal cost of solving a new problem sort of decreases dramatically. That, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and the kind of degenerate case of this, which really shows this is crisis. You know, I, 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 we're kind of very proud of how we can respond. We can help our customers respond to crisis because the cost of solving the problem is so low. You have all the agility. You've already got the data that you can wield, and then you can drive it to changing your operations, changing how you make decisions. Uh, how do I know what's happening with COVID? Well, the first thing is, you know, I don't have any integrated national data asset that operates across 6,000 hospitals. Okay, after that, now I need to know what's going on with PPE. Now I need to figure out how to allocate PPE. Okay, now it's not a PPE problem. Now it's a vaccine problem. Like, how do I continually iterate on top of, like, what is the specific problem of the current specific manifestation? And oftentimes in these crises, right, the problem rolls. Like, what the, the problem is today is different than the problem tomorrow. But if you have the data all integrated, then it becomes sort of much more easier to respond. No, it, it, it makes total sense. Um, the the inverse of sort of go-to-market is churn. And once a company has Palantir in place, I mean, does anyone churn? I mean, like what what like what what would what would be is it just sort of at some point that like, wait, you solved my problem, that cost a whole lot of money. Yeah, you did a good job, but I'm not sure we can afford this going forward. Or is this sort of like the world's best lock-in? We really don't have any interest in working with customers that don't want to work with us. Like I said, like we're really at the beginning. Uh, we need customers that are forcing us to accelerate in the innovation of what our product is going to be. That only works when we're very aligned with our customers. And so if we're doing something that creates misalignment. Yeah. To be clear, lock-in is not a bad thing per se. I mean, I guess the word lock-in is bad, but you could reframe it as an available set of APIs that is fully tied into my existing data and is an obvious next step to build something. I mean, like operating systems are the best lock-in on earth because they are so good for everyone involved. They they dramatically expand the markets for 
uh, you know, from a computer operation, from a hardware perspective, from a developer perspective, from a user perspective, and what's more available. So it's not a criticism. It's a, it's a, it's a praise, at least maybe, you know, we just sort of naturally, you know, ooh, lock in. That sounds bad. Well, I'd say it's sticky. St- okay, fair enough. The sticky thing is the positive one. Yeah. 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 And, and of course, like customers are smart about this. They recognize like that people want to, you know, sometimes the Europeans call it the reversibility of the decision. So, you know, everything's open. You have to kind of walk that journey with them to understand it's like, look, if I wanted to exit, could I? And so like, we're very committed to that. But and to Ted's point, we hold ourselves to the standard, but we want to be the place, the, the most logical, cheapest place to solve the next problem. How are we going to continuously innovate on doing that? Why do you think that other companies haven't taken this sort of approach of being this sort of, you know, sort of all consuming in some respects? I mean, uh, you know, whereas it's be so the point hard. Solution? It's so hard. <laughs> like that's, I mean, and hard on every dimension, right? Like you have to sign up for uh, outcomes. You, you have to get software engineers who have the alternative of working in Silicon Valley in a uh, pleasured experience deploying downrange uh, and uh, or downrange into a Fortune 500 institution defined by giant bureaucracies and data rights access and all of these different things. So one, you got to motivate really talented people to do that. That's really hard. Then you have to figure out how you can build product that actually solves the problems. That's a substantively hard problem. Then you have to figure out how you do that where you're creating technology that is horizontal and load-bearing for the next technology that you didn't solve. That's a lot of internal friction. Uh, How do I get the FDE to work with the dev uh, who has a different accountability function? How do I put the dev's work on my critical path to solve the critical need of the customer uh, when that dev is accountable to solving things for 350 different customers? Uh, this is a very hard, we don't always get it right sort of internally. I would say that I think we're the best in the world at doing this and we suck at it because it's so hard and we're always missing over under and over calibrated with the generalization versus specific. And it's very unconventional. And so you get critiqued all the time for ways that are kind of like, we're like that is that critique has nothing to do with what we think we're doing. Like we don't even care about the critique, but it requires a lot of discipline, a lot of commitment to fully align yourself with your customer. Do you think you're getting to the fun part now? I mean, we're optimistic. Uh, and, and I think maybe the uh, it's more fun now than it was. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, it's still hard all the time. But one of the things that I think is getting really fun right now is we're seeing a shift in the market with sort of the advent or sort of maybe the threshold crossing of the effectiveness of large language models yeah. Well, let me do that in a second. I, one more question on sort of the motivation bit. Yep. How yep. important was it with keeping these engineers to build this massive system? A lot, you just extended, I think you just think about it for two minutes. You can imagine how much you had work you had to do and how much you had to build. How important was it to have that core original motivating factor of we're doing this for national security? Were there like, I mean, you know, Alex Karp's sort of issued that letter with the S1, just sort of laying it out there. Look, we believe in sort of Western governance. We're aligning ourselves with democracies. We're not going to sell to China. We don't believe in Silicon Valley, a bunch of executives sort of sitting in their rooms telling people what to do. I mean, how was that just a great sort of letter for the IPO? Or was that something that was an ongoing motivation? And did that tie into your ability to sort of persevere for, you know, it's been almost 20 years uh, and sort of build this system? We should probably both give our personal answer to that. But I was like, I don't think there's any way you can do it without that. It's like, crucial. If you, if you, yeah, it, 
it's fundamental it would be the, and, and it's fundamental also because it permeates. So I sit on the commercial side of the business, but the same mission orientation, right? It's like when you work at a mission oriented place, then you take on the mission of your customer. If that's someone building a mine in Mongolia or figuring out how to price insurance in Switzerland, like you still have to sign up for that mission and belief that in that mission, then it's the success of the West is the strength of the economy, the ability to employ people, the ability to continue to actually drive innovation into the core of the economy, not just in Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. Like without that, um, there's no way you sign up for this pain. You look at the longevity of people at Pound here. It's, it's like strangely, I mean, the people who have been here tend to be here and stay here. And I think a big part of it is look at all the things in the world that I have some small part in making better and being able to touch and across the diversity of things that I get to do it. It's, it's why you sign, it's why you joined the company, but then it's, it's, it's how you continue to be motivated through the incredible pain. Like you're dealing with the bureaucracy of your customers. You're dealing with the imperfections of the world. And you, and you don't get to just put down your toys and run away like most tech companies want to do. It's you're embracing that complexity and you're defining your reward for embracing it based on the change you're able to manifest. And so it drives alignment through the whole company and the talent in the whole company. Well, let's, okay, we are now to the AI part. Uh, I, I've been put, I've not purposely put it off, but I do think it's an interesting sort of to lay the broader foundation here. Uh, Sham, you just gave a keynote last week, uh, I think a couple weeks ago when this is sort of going to publish, talking about your new AI platform. Walk me through it. Give me the pitch. I, I think the, you know, you're obviously already plugged into sort of all this data, but is this something like, why now? Why today? And I mean that in a context of why not previously? What is it about 2023 that this is the time for it to come out? So AIP is a core set of foundational technologies that really enable enterprises to bring LLMs to their data on their private networks to enable their software to connect the LLMs to the tools of the enterprise, to their AI models, to their geophysical simulators, to the things that exist, the technology they've already invested in, and to do so in a way that's controlled and governed so that they can ultimately trust it and comply with regulations. And there's a lot of complexity. You can almost think about the, the LLM as being like the first mile. How do you wield this to make decisions being all of the other work to be done there? And I think in many ways, all of the work that we'd done with Foundry and Gotham was kind of just waiting for the LLM. And the, the me kind of mental model I have for this is that uh, the LLM doesn't replace your software and doesn't replace the human. It replaces what the human was doing when they were using your software. So if, if you kind of step back to a pre-LLM world, the way that Foundry would be an operating system for the enterprise, and now you bring AIP into that, it's going to supercharge the experiences you have around the decisions you can make. So maybe the most pithy way of saying this is that we think there's an opportunity to enable every decision the enterprise is making with AI and that AIP is going to bring that experience to bear. And there's a couple of pieces that I think make it that are kind of generically required that we've been investing in, but I think that make us ideally suited to doing that. And the first is that you need, you know, the, the more obsessed you are with type safety in your operating system, the more leverage you actually get out of the LLM. Mm -hmm. And we are an obsessively, actually the whole stack is kind of obsessively type safe. But if we just talk about the, the layer that the human is interacting with, this enables them to go much further, much faster. And uh, one way of thinking about this is if, if you go to this, this enterprise, you're trying to essentially get the entire state machine that is your enterprise somehow into the context and the question that you're trying to solve. 
And I don't think you can do that without a foundational set of technologies that have modeled the semantic layer, that have given you the digital twin, and then give you the tools to iterate back and forth between whether it's retrieval augmented generation or actual computational tools that allow you to get that to compute, to get an answer. Are these models, are you using a third-party API to, for, for the model and then layering on sort of the enterprise's data on top of that? Or have you developed your, your own models? We're bringing uh, the models to our customers here so that you can self-host the models, pick your own open source models. We think there's a huge opportunity in continuing to, to fine-tune these models as you go along. Essentially, our view of the world is that the rate of progress with the models is incredible, that you're probably going to have a menagerie of models that are actually in your enterprise. You're going to be able to very cheaply fine-tune them to the specific needs that the biggest, baddest model is not inherently the likely to win, the one that's likely to win. We think there's kind of this Goldilocks like balance between the power of the model and the rate at which you can iterate on that model. And so if, you, if you're living in this sort of universe, I think you're going to actually be able to develop models that help you with the specific applications um, that you're trying to apply it towards. And what we're trying to enable is, is really this almost like prompt-free experience. We, we, I, I, my mental model for this is that like the prompts are tools for developers. And really, how do I enable magical interactions in the operating system itself for our users and enable the developers who are building these applications to stand on top of and create these LLM-powered experiences? As I understand it, the way like an LLM will work today is you have sort of the core model, then you can sort of fine-tune it with sort of your own sort of data, or it can be a particular, you know, use case or, or type of data to, to your bit, like, uh, you know, if you're doing coding, for example, or it could be, you know, but there's sort of like the, the foundational piece, but you, you don't just go straight from foundational piece to sort of application. There's some sort of intervening step there. I, I guess I'm a little like you talked about, you can sub in any data, you can use open source data, open source model, you can do X, Y, Z. Does that mean that there's sort of a distinct uh, walk me? Th- I'm a little unclear about how this works. So, if you're an enterprise, do you say I want to use the OpenAI sort of model, or I want to use the Google's model, and then there's a intervening step where you fine tune it with with the with your data, or is it no? Like this is completely self contained thing. You you these open source options. Sorry, I'm just a little confused on how it actually like, yeah, no, manifests no, it, it's itself. It's a good question. Just kind of slow down and unpack it. So AIP ships with predefined integrations out of the box, hitting these large foundational models. And those are wired up to work with the generic experiences in the platform. And is there, is, is there still going to be a step there, this sort of fine-tuning step as part of the AIP delivery? There's no fine-tuning presupposed out okay. of the box. It only allows you to capture more and more specificity and more and more, it allows you to capture more value out of your unique use cases that may not exist on the public internet, may not exist in the training data set for these foundational models where you're going to need fine tuning. But it doesn't presuppose that. And I think a big part of it is how do I actually give those LLMs the tools? The first part is I have my application, I'm using it. I'm trying to do stuff on my private data, which is clearly not in there. Then you have the weaknesses of, of LLMs. I'm asking it to do things like that are likely to lead to hallucination or I'm asking you to do things that where I can't trust it perfectly. How do I combine the strength of the LLM with the fact that I have a whole bunch of tools in my enterprise? Like if I'm asking the LLM to answer a question, that's very different than asking you to generate the query I need, where I can use traditional IR techniques and the security against that to actually answer the question properly. And so how do I help you compose these so that you get the experience of the LLM, but you get the leverage of your existing enterprise tools? 
and what what is the like what's the exact magic to sort of make that make that work i mean in your keynote it almost felt like this was the world's best sort of uh sql query building tool which i i think is actually quite compelling that makes a lot of sense but like how does that actually sort of manifest itself in in day-to-day work well, it allows you to ask questions. So if you, it, the, the keynote kind of breaks down a few different sections. The first is, okay, how do I integrate data into my ontology? You could, you could call that, I think if you squint at it, the world's best SQL bu- building tool, right. where I can just take, here's my target, here's my source, just can you connect the dots on this? But now that I have the ontology, how can I ask questions of it? How can I, you know, the example I showed there is like, I got an email saying that there's a, dis- there's a disruption at one of my distribution centers. Okay, well how do I just paste that email in and ask it to help me visualize the impacted customer orders and then work through a series of steps to figure out what can I do about reallocating inventory given that I have this disruption. So you've built this operating system. You've a way to sort of pull in all this data and to make decisions. And your hope is that basically the LM will expose all these latent capabilities that are already there in a way that people, you know, don't need to know how to operate the operating system because it's sort of like they're, you know, to use Microsoft's term, it, it's sort of your, your co-pilot. Yeah. And, and maybe I'd, I'd, I'd kind of bring it also back to sort of previous in the conversation here, we had these sort of two foundational traumas that I think are really relevant in the AIP context, but at a whole new level order of magnitude of ambition. So the first one is how well integrated is my data? Now in the LLM world, that's how can I manage a very small context window? So if you think of every single decision that every human is making across every enterprise, there is a flow of data coming through the enterprise that prevents that provides that context window. Oftentimes they are fighting their ERP, their CRM, their access database, their Excel macros to get the context that the human needs in order to make the decision. So if I can provide you an automated context window uh, that is relevant to your decision as an operator, okay, that's the first order thing that I need. Making sure you always have all the data that you need to make a decision at the moment you need to make a decision. That you need that your context window is accurate because, well, I'll get to is like, because now it's an agent doing it instead of, instead of a user doing those things. So that has to be automated. It has to be programmatic. I have to be able to constantly be providing and flowing the right context over the user at, at any given point in time. But then I think the second trauma is also as important of, okay, so you see a lot of things that are like, let me summarize unstructured information. Let me do semantic search, kind of the, the low-hanging fruit of how people are like wading themselves into generative AI. But that really isn't particularly interesting. We know this in an enterprise context, right? I have to be able to do something. Uh, and I can't just, it's not an insight, it's an action. So how do I then provide the LLM the right context window, but also the tools to be able to say, I want to call a order reallocation model. Uh, and that model is a tool that an LLM doesn't have. It is one of the queries that it needs, but then it also needs to know is like, under what conditions can I act on reallocating this? Now, if I need to have the infrastructure to say, I want to increase the automation, I want to be able to very rigorously define what the LLM can access from a data perspective, what actions it can take under what circumstances, where a human needs to be managed in the loop. I now have the ability to essentially move to that operating system, but where a significant amount of that operating is done by autonomous AI agents that are focused on very specific tasks that can take that context and start to iterate across them. But then at the end state, what you're going to expect, right, is that you're going to have hundreds of different agents potentially right. that are integrating and accomplishing components of this. So how do I have the infrastructure that manages all of the tooling, the security, the actions, et cetera, to get them to do something that is much more 
interesting as, as carpets then write poetry, right? Like, like actually do something. Yeah. I, mean, this, I think this ties into something you said, your, your sort of keynote shop. I mean, like maybe the world's you know best sequel builder was not the right way to, or sequel query builder was not the right way to put it. It's the world's greatest. I think I'm repeating what you said, actually, because it's kind of clicked sort of greatest prompt engineer to some extent where, and that's how you can use a generic model because that context window is basically, you can pass that in with a single query. And then like you, so it's not just what the user types, but every aspect of the user's bit. And you sort of, you said this, um, Sham, you know, WYSIWYG sort of reimagined that AIP, you know, you already said every UI is going to change. This is the integration point. And, And it sounds like what this is, if I can analogize it to the operating system, is the shift from sort of the command line to the GUI, where all the capabilities you've built, they're all there, but there's still a steep learning curve for the user to sort of even know what they're able to do. Yes, you've got all the data in one place. Yes, they can sort of do all this operations on it. You've done that hard work, but there's you have to be an advanced user to sort of know how to use the command line. And your bit is, look, all those capabilities and all those decision points can be passed into the prompt, basically, so that it's already c- constrained to what's possible. And then it's just, you just say, you, what is it? What's your WYSIWYG? Uh, what you say is what you get. What you say is what you get. Exactly. I, I think that's a, that's a very good, I think it's the same sort of revolution from command line to GUI, that GUI to LLMs are going to power that. And I do think there's a part of this where like the initial experimentation that has mostly been happening. Right. Because, well, just to jump in one thing, like, like a bit about the, the, the sort of command line to GUI is you're not exposed to the capabilities of the operating system and what it can do with sort of, you know, with the hardware that you're on. In this bit, it's how do you expose and show someone all of the data they have access to. That's sort of the hard problem here and sort of to what, what AIs are sort of uniquely able to expose. And you, there's no one, you can't keep that all in your head. Just like you, you can't keep all this sort of functionality of a computer in your head, except for at least most of us anyway. That's right. I think it itself acts as a funneling mechanism to expose the data you need, the decisions that are possible and relevant in that moment against the, the, the operating context that you actually have. And if you continue going down that path, I think it also changes how developers build software, which is the same way that the GUI changed what developers were actually building as well and how they thought about what they were building. If you thought about a prompt-free user interface, like you may have buttons that behind it are actually calling the LLM. When you're using Copilot to write code, you're not asking for it to solve a function for you. It's based on the intent of you as a user and the context of the code that you're writing, what kind of comes next. And so really honing in on those sorts of co-pilot experiences or what's possible here. And I think what redefines the user interface. Yeah. And I think this makes sense in your, my, my initial question, which is why 2023? I mean, something you guys have both talked about is look, you, it's hard to understand Palantir because we're building for something that's five to 10 years out sort of in the future. And, and, and you have to sort of trust us on that. And then it's like, Oh, well, here's Palantir coming along six months after chat GPT. We got an LLM product, but your point here is not that you're not building that product. You're, Taking because you've basically spent years, to your point, making very type safe data, like the best labeled data sets in the world for all intents and purposes, that's custom to an enterprise. Now that LMs have showed up, you can leverage them in a way no one else can. Exactly. Or more importantly, our customers can leverage them. You know, it's like when we were working with an, an insurance company, like we were able to build an agent to subrogate insurance claims in two days. But I think a fairer version of it is it's not, it was four years of. Right their ontology, their setup, running their operations on this thing, plus two days. And I think we sort of come back to, right, is when we look at the implementations of our software generally, 
is the ability to Im- integrate the next order, sort of integrate LLMs into that, does it provide an opportunity to fundamentally alter the outcomes that our customers have with that software? And if it does, then it's something that we need to focus on. We need to run at very quickly. And I think where we've gotten confidence right now is that this will turbocharge the value of our software to our customers and sort of the early adopters, which I mentioned the insurance, you know, you saw in the keynotes, like what JD Power is doing is they think about redefining the experience of how their customers interact with their data. Uh, what Jacobs is doing when you think about how you redefine like entire sewer or wastewater management networks, it's very exciting, mostly because of, gosh, our customers are going to be really successful with this. Yeah. Well, this is why I put the sort of disclaimer at the beginning where I'm not I'm probably insufficiently grilling you in part because I think it's you know what the picture you're painting is sort of very compelling. This bit about actually working in the real world, actually solving sort of real problems, building real structure around this and having this operating system sort of approach and. And yeah, now now you're sort of like, you know, the the, the AI or the, the UI has shown up. The AI as UI sort of bit makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's very compelling. Yeah. And I would also say the other thing we're excited about is also the demands on our software is showing up. So instead of something that is like, okay, now I have like incremental efficiency in implementing a 90s on-prem data stack using cloud compute with what I expect from data. Now we have CEO saying like, shoot, this tech got scary. Like I need this for what I think will be the survival of my institution over the next five years. That's a market that's very compelling for us because we're very, we're built to sort of sign up for that accountability. Is there a bit where you are worried about sort of your addressable market in that people are just going to be grabbing for LMs sort of left and right? It's or? the opposite. I, I think so. The, the, the alpha side of this is like, wow, this obsession we've had on type safety has met its moment. And that's unique to us. Right. The beta on this is finally everyone expects their software to actually work fast and that is that's expanding our market interesting so so do you think there's going to be a lot of companies that take sort of an off-the-shelf solution do fine-tuning or whatever it might be but that's actually the completely wrong direction because they're just going to, the, the hallucination problems are not going to be over overcomable because they they haven't properly defined their data whereas you guys by sort of kind of the opposite direction do whatever model you want but because we're so well, we've so well defined sort of what we have and what we don't, the hallucination bit is, is a feature, not a bug. It is, but I also think it's more than that because it's not just can it be accurate, but like can it do something? I think this is where our opinion that like the, the chat interface is such a limiting interface for this technology because it makes everyone say, like, can I get an accurate answer to a chat? Like who cares? There's so much more that you can do with it if you think of it like how can I operate? with these things. And so, yes, accuracy is presupposed as a requirement to even get to a point where you could contemplate doing that. But then how do I get to a point where I'm doing something? Right. Because it's generating stuff without you sort of instigating the generation. It's just doing it on its on its own. And that requires a, yeah, a much higher degree of trust because you don't even know what went into the prompt. And kind of the tooling to think about it, it's kind of like the old the old version of this would be cron job. If we go a few paradigms out. It's like, okay, well, how am I building the agent? How does the agent know when to start? How have I modeled the state machine that's the enterprise? What part of that state machine do I trust them on? Under what circumstances? What are the assertions I'm building in so that I know whether it's hitting its guardrails or not? And then the output of the agent is going to be realistically a a set of scenarios for a human to evaluate. So that's where it also meets the reality of change management within any institution. Like We're going to develop trust experientially with it. 
you know, it's, it's like, this can't come out of the lab. So how am I giving co-pilots or agents to these humans and creating these human agent teams? And I think the speed with which enterprises can leverage that to, to achieve real transformation is exciting. Very good. Well, uh, we have gone long and gotten, I think, very much into the weeds, but I think this was a very interesting overview. I think the overlying picture is really compelling, and um, I appreciate you guys coming on and talking about it. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having us.